101.9 Chai FM, I'm Benji Shulman and this is the new Blue Review at the beginning of the show, which is why the first song that you were listening to there was Idana Reichel with Bereshit in the beginning. Hope you are enjoying it and uh, like the morning show this morning when I walked in, Lindiwe was looking uh, like she was a bit sad that the Russian World Cup was over because uh, she was looking a bit Russian, but that's perhaps because she was just a bit cold. Uh, but it hasn't been so cold actually uh, today, so I'm very happy because the weekend wasn't uh, wasn't so warm. So I hope that you are going to work and are not feeling uh, the chill this morning. And I hope that you enjoyed the weekend. Uh, lots and lots of great sport on. I'm not even a big sports person, and I enjoyed watching the sport this, mo- this weekend, which was cool. Uh, well done to Kevin Anderson for getting through to uh, Wimbledon final. First uh, person to do it under South African colors in 97 years. Uh, well, I think the first male. I don't know if we had a female uh, before then. But 97 is not, uh, not a bad run, uh, and he didn't win. But uh, if you're going to get to Wimbledon, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. So, uh, well done to him, and uh, I hope you enjoyed the final of the World Cup. And uh, I can't say too much about Russia uh, as a country, but uh, they, they did put on a, a decent World Cup, and the games were lots of fun. And uh, yeah, it was good soccer all around. Did, you, did anybody see the the protester that broke onto the field? Uh, I thought it was just your random protester, uh, but actually, it was a member of the protest band Pussy Riot. Uh, they were protesting the police presence. Uh, of in in the Russian World Cup and the the crackdown on dissidents and, and basically the lack of democracy in the country. Uh, not that I think FIFA cares because the next uh, next World Cup is going to be in Qatar. So you know, I don't think that that's a big requirement on their list. But it was just interesting to see uh, those were the people that managed to break onto the stage in the World Cup this year, uh, despite all of the soccer. So. Yeah, that's that's what happened this weekend and what's happening up on the program today. I'm very excited. Uh, after break, we're going to be talking a little bit about what's going on in Gaza um, from a different point of view, um, particularly uh, in in regards to uh, film. Uh, we, we often look at what's going on with Gaza, with the rockets or whatever. I'm going to talk about how does rock music uh, and Gaza fit in. So that's one of the things we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about Israel's largest uh, and most brand new natural history museum, which is um, shaped like, you'll never guess, it's a natural history museum, has lots of animals, therefore it has to be, that's right, an ark. We're going to be talking about the new ark that they're building in the Middle East. That's pretty interesting. And then I'm very excited at half past, please do keep your, your ears peeled for this, because we are going to be talking to a guy called Nick Cleland. He is an author uh, and a former m- member of parliament for the, for the DA. And he's just written this new book called Spin, which is all about how the media operates and how to deal with the media. And he's a very savvy guy, uh, works with a PR firm with Tony Leon. And he's going to be talking to us about this book and about the media and about the state of politics in South Africa, which I think will be absolutely fascinating. So that's uh, what's on the show for today. Uh, and uh, I hope that you are looking forward to it as much as I am. And we're going to take a short break. We come back, and we're going to be talking uh, about uh, we're talking about Gaza and uh, rock music. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is one hundred one point nine High FM. 
You're back with 101.9 Hi FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the new Blue Review. Now, obviously, in the last 24 hours, uh, we've seen a lot about what's going on with Gaza. Over the weekend, there were a number of rockets that were fired from the Gaza Strip into Israel, uh, including some that hitting a synagogue uh, and a school. Luckily, there was no one inside because it was the weekend. Uh, but it does look like that uh, is going to potentially be an uptick in violence there. And I do hope that things uh, calm down because uh, that could be quite scary. Um, by the way, if you want to be part of the show, 34519, that's the SMS line, if you have anything you want to say on the subject. Uh, but what I want to say on the subject is something a bit different because uh, I'm sure you would have covered some of the stuff in the morning show, so I don't have to repeat it. But I watched a fantastic film the other day called Rock in the Red Zone. And if you have the opportunity, I would really suggest that you uh, take it and go and watch this film because uh, it's a really interesting account of what's happening in Gaza from a completely different point of view. And basically what it does is it tracks the, the life and uh, journey of a film photographer from uh, the States. From, she's from L.A. And she did a lot of filming in the States on music. She was a music documentary film photographer. She'd make documentary films about music and about what was going on in different scenes. She was Jewish. Uh, and she had heard that in the town of, town of Sterot, there was a great musical culture, and indeed there was. Uh, Sterot is obviously this town that is in the south of Israel. It's probably the largest town or the, the first town, really, that you get in, in terms of the Gaza Strip uh, once you hit Israel. Uh, that's not a kibbutz or a moshav. It's a proper town. And as, as a result, particularly in the uh, late 2000s, uh, when the first operations were starting to happen against Gaza, this town was a place that used to take the barrage of all the rockets. And so if you drive around the town, for example, today, at any rate, you see a lot of bomb shelters, uh, including like if you go into one of the parks. Uh, and in the park, there'll be the normal playground equipment that you expect for children. But in addition, you'll actually find um, sort of bomb shelters that are painted like a worm, for example. So you have a big, long bomb, bomb shelter. If you can imagine a bomb shelter, it's a big concrete uh, curve if you like it's like a like a bus shelter or a, a, a concrete culvert and at the front of the the bomb shelter you'll just have a, a face of of a worm so basically to the children it just looks like a worm and what they learn is that when the siren goes off the the red alert then they have to get inside the worm uh, and they learn it like a song so they, they don't know that it's a, a bomb issue they just know that they have to get inside the worm which also happens to be built like a bomb shelter uh, so this is the kind of town that you live in uh, and, and that she went to go view. Now, at the time, she wasn't that uh, interested in in the rockets. Uh, it, it was just at the start of things. She was going there for the music. And, and Sterot, as a town in Israel, is very, very famous because a lot of some of the most famous bands in Israel, stuff that you will hear uh, on Chai FM on a regular basis, uh, came out of rock bands that were in steroids. It was a big part of the culture there. Uh, between the 50s, 60s, and 70s, a lot of rock music in Israel was basically uh, just copies of what was going on in around the Western world. So, you know, you had the Beatles, and you had the Rolling Stones, and you had whatever rock music was, was going on. And what Sterot and the bands in Sterot started doing was that they would actually start to uh, play what we would now know as Mizrahi music or 
you know, Middle Eastern music because a lot of the people ended up settling in Stirot were from immigrants from, from Arab countries uh, or from Ethiopia or whatever. And so they created the kind of sound that we now know uh, when you're listening, for example, to Dan Reichel, they were the basis for that, uh, a lot of the bands that came out of steroid. So she goes there to to do uh, a documentary on this thing and to look at what is going on in, this, in, the, in, the, in the sound of steroid. And she ends up um, basically in the middle of a war. Right, she 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 has these rockets that are falling on her. She and instead of running away, she actually ends up moving to the town, and uh, and actually staying there, and uh, having to 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 live with the rockets, and and ends up making this film about what is it like to be a musician uh, when the rockets are falling. Now, often war films are very difficult, and this one is no different. Uh, and if you you watch it, it's very. Um, it's very hard to watch, and it's all pre-Iron Dome, remember. So, so rockets are falling all the time, and they're busy filming it. Uh, and there is kind of a happy ending. I don't want to spoil it for you because it is a part of the film that you, you don't see. But, but if you really want to understand the rocket reality that people in Starota are under in a way which is not your typical war documentary, I would really recommend you go watch Rock in the Red Zone. Uh, you can get it, I'm sure, on the Internet or, or have a look. Uh, but it really was a fascinating account of how two very different subjects in documentary film can be brought together in one discussion. So the one is uh, obviously music and the other one is the political situation. And there's actually an additional part of the story, which I'm not going to tell you. So that's Rock in the Red Zone. Uh, I encourage you to go and have a look at that and uh, just to get a, a perspective on steroid and Gaza and Israel that you perhaps hadn't seen before. Right, we're going to take a, a short break and some music, and when we get back, we're going to be talking about the latest arc in the Middle East. The best part of your day. At the heart of your community. All the talk. All the music. All the news. Hi, FM. 101.9, Kai FM, I'm Benji Shulman, and that was Edward Banai uh, with Eret, some good old-fashioned folk music uh, on the show this morning. By the way, if you want to be part of the good old-fashioned folk music, uh, you can SMS us, 34519, that's the SMS line. You can also WhatsApp us, 0618951019. We are happy to take uh, any of your comments on the show today. Um, so, of course, if you know your Bible, you will know that uh, there was an ark in the Bible, uh, but what you might not know is that there is another ark coming uh, to uh, to Israel uh, again, once again. Uh, uh, if you are a fan of the ark, or indeed even a fan of uh, yeah, what what was that movie called? Um, Night at the Museum. Remember Night at the Museum with the dinosaurs and all the different animals and whatever. Well, it turns out that they are building one in Israel as well, uh, or have been built, rather, a new one. It's called uh, the Steinhardt Museum of Natural History, and uh, it was recently inaugurated, uh, and it is, in fact, in the shape of an ark. Now, why an ark, you might ask? Because it is a natural history museum, and basically, this is the largest natural history museum in the Middle East, and it's devoted to all of the different wildlife and fauna and flora that you find uh, in the Middle East. So, for example, uh, upon entering the museum, you are greeted by uh, a, a, a reenactment of the great avian migrations from Africa to Europe that go through Israel's Khula Valley. Of course, basically Israel uh, is sort of like the one-stop shop. Uh, if you are a bird flying between Africa and Israel, uh, instead of sh stopping off at uh, 
petrol station you stop off at uh, the at Israel uh, in the Khula Valley and they eat and they uh, just relax. So that's obviously a huge part uh, of the museum. And uh, it basically talks very much about this museum, uh, the 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 continental crossroads which Israel is uh, between Africa, Europe and Asia and how that affects the fauna as well as the impact of a man on on the climate including urban development um, and and climate change in those areas. So it looks like a fascinating museum uh, and it includes things that you may not have expected to see including pictures of lions uh, and uh, a sort of uh, Caracals and, and animals which you don't expect to see, uh, things like hedgehogs. You know how many hedgehogs there are in Israel? I had no idea uh, until I started looking through some of the stuff uh, that you do have hedgehogs in Israel uh, and that they, uh, you know, that they're a big part of the fauna there, which is uh, absolutely fantastic. There's a whole interactive map of Israel showing some of its current environmental problems. We've spoken a lot about that on the show, uh, including uh, the depletion of the Sea of Galilee uh, and the shrinking of the Dead Sea. Uh, and also how you can be more impactful uh, uh, environmentally when you when you do things. So uh, that is pretty cool. Now, if you're not just into the things that are big and furry and scary, they also have a bug uh, bugs and beyond section where you can check out uh, some of uh, s- some of the cro- creepy crawlies that they have all over uh, Israel, uh, as well as a, a life in the dark section, which shows you all the animals uh, that are nocturnal. Uh, in Israel, so it's pretty cool. Uh, looks like a nice museum, uh, somewhere to take the kids the next time you're there. Uh, and uh, apparently, they also do weekend holiday, uh, holiday and research craft workshops and film screening. So all around interesting center. Uh, actually, by the way, it was donated. Uh, the reason it's called the Steinhardt Museum of Natural History uh, was that it's actually donated uh, by uh, Michael Steinhardt, is an American. So he decided he wanted uh, a whole museum in his name to go in Israel. So the next time you want to go. Uh, into in, into uh, into Israel, and the next time you want to see a little bit of of fauna, that is definitely something which um, uh, you can do. Uh, I think it would be uh, extremely interesting and uh, good to see another ark being built uh, this time to save uh, to save the animals, not from a flood, uh, but from but from some other stuff. So there we go. That's it. If you want more information, by the way, you can check it out, israel21c.org. They have a whole article. And then, of course, uh, if you just actually go to the website itself uh, of of the Israeli National History Museum, uh, they will... And they will take there, and then you can actually see what are the costs, what are the times, uh, all that kind of thing. Uh, I'm going to take a short break, uh, and we'll be back just after this. Stay relevant and up to date. Keep informed. This is 101.9 High FM. Some more Idan Reichel there for you on 101.9 High FM. I'm Betty Shulman, and this is the new Blue Review. Welcome back to the program. Now, I don't know if you're into space at all, but I love it. Uh, space, I think, is an entirely uh, cool subject and uh, something that's great to explore, which is why I'm quite excited that Israel has decided to send a rocket launcher to the moon. I haven't p- managed to come up uh, with uh, anything clever to say around it. You know, one small step for Jews, one giant, I don't know. As I said, I haven't come up with anything clever. I tried. One giant Canadian for mankind. Let us know what you think. What what should be the thing that the that the the Israeli lunar module says when it comes back? 
uh, when it lands on the moon, uh, what does it say when you land on the moon and you're Jewish? Do you say, oy vey? Do you say, did I bring my kanadalach? I'm not sure what you say. But uh, in any case, it is going. The space flight unusually is not being done uh, by a government agency. It's being done by something called Space IL, which is a non-profit uh, organization which was set up uh, as a way of trying to win a prize. There was something called a SpaceX prize, uh, Google uh, X prize, excuse me. And uh, basically what you had to try and do uh, was was launch a, a module that could land on the moon. Now, as it happened, nobody managed to get um, uh, the prize in the end. Uh, but But a good $88 million dollars uh, which is quite a lot of money, was invested in the spacecraft's development and construction. Uh, and they, they spent eight years and $88 million trying to get this um, spacecraft in, into production, and they never managed to get it done. Uh, but then, and this is why I'm actually telling you the story, because obviously there's a space element, but there's uh, another one. Uh, the, the head of Space IL, uh, the chairman, is Morris Kahn. He donated $27 million, uh, to the effort um, even after the deadline has passed because he said that he really wanted to make sure that this happened. And so they actually are going to be taking this uh, flight. It's, they're going to be launching from Cape Canaveral, and they're going to be taking next year uh, an Israeli flag uh, that will go uh, to an altitude of uh, 66 kilometers uh, above the earth uh, and get uh, commands from a, a control room. And uh, it's also going to do a little bit of scientific research up there. On the moon. Now, why do I mention Morris Kahn? Because he's actually a South African. Uh, he moved to Israel in the 50s and uh, tried all sorts of interesting uh, innovations. Once he, once he got there, he had a few businesses, even uh, apparently tried to open a ski resort uh, at one point. Uh, and nothing really worked until he started in a company called Amdocs, which was uh, basically a sort of version of the Yellow Pages. And, and that made him millions and billions of, of dollars. Uh, and he went into many other uh, enterprises. And now, He's a huge philanthropist in Israel uh, and in, I think even in South Africa uh, and and he's part of this incredible opportunity to take people to the moon. Uh, so I like the fact that there's a cool South African connection there. Uh, another interesting aspect of it is that uh, there is a, a STEM education aspect. So STEM meaning science, technology, uh, engineering and math. And uh, that was the secondary goal of the program. So one was to try and get this lunar module onto the moon, uh, but it was also to try and encourage Israeli children to study science, technology, engineering, and maths. Uh, and so wherever they go, uh, they have a Moon Kids website uh, that Space IL uh, shows kids wherever they go, and it basically is there to teach uh, children about uh, the, the space and about learning and science and how it can take them all sorts of places, uh, which I think is really great. Um, someone uh, I'm commenting on the, on the project, the I, IAI, which is the Israeli Aerospace Institute, they're the, the government agency, not the, the, the little organization that's, that's doing it, uh, says, you know, the state of Israel has done a lot of work uh, in terms of the military aspect of space because uh, you need that in order to defend yourself against missiles and stuff. Uh, but they want to really work to put that into the civilian sector, which I think is really where uh, there are some amazing gains that can be made. So that is uh, absolutely fascinating. Check out the Space IL website and uh, you can watch uh, when the Israelis are taking, I think, Bamba to the moon. A frequency like no other. 101.9 High FM. 
You're back with 101.9 High FM. I'm Menji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review. And I'm very happy to say that we have Nick Cleland on uh, the line, who could talk to us about his new book. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us on the New Blue Review. It's good to be with you. Uh, so you have quite an interesting career. Uh, you started off as a, a junior MP uh, in, uh, in, in the – was it the DP even back then before it became the DA? Uh, and – sorry? Yes, it was me. Uh, it was, was the DP. And, uh, and you now run a, a, a PR agency called Resolve with uh, another famous member of the DP, Tony Leon. Uh, so it sounds like a, a super interesting – uh, uh, sort of line of work. How did you decide to get into politics in the first place? I actually got into politics by mistake. Um, I was, um, sorry, I've got a terrible repeat on my line right now, and I'm battling to sort of not hear myself repeat myself. Uh, yeah, it, it did seem to be, uh, it was repeating a little bit, but it seems to have improved now. Just try again. Yeah, I've got some headphones on now. I think that's better. Right, yes, we can hear you much better. Thank you. Okay, cool. Um, so basically, I was working um, at university and after university on radio stations. Ah, okay. And I was famously, um, well, famously, the station was famous. I wasn't. Um, Capital Radio. And um, the station shut down, and I was still doing other gigs and working on other kind of radio and DJing kind of stuff. And I literally walked into the Democratic Party office in Durban and said, how can I help? Literally, 10 days later, I was the national chairman of the youth movement. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to be careful with what you with what you uh, ask. Is is that the first uh, the first lesson of the book? <laughs> well, precisely. Um, but look, it was also a case of the party was at one point seven percent. Frankly, no one in the world really wanted to join. Never mind get involved or even vote for the party. So it also was a case of the you know right place and right time. Well, I think that that's also an interesting point that you make. You know, we we tend to think of the Democratic Alliance now uh, as the main opposition party, and people will shout at it or not shout at it just on that basis. But at the yeah. beginning of 1994, it it wasn't even the third party on the list or the fourth. It was a, a tiny little minuscule thing, and the fact that it survived was amazing. But the fact that it eventually grew to what it is today uh, is is a real a really interesting story uh, in in how to grow a party and how to um, project communications in that way, which I think uh, is part of the story. It's exactly what the story is. It's about being able to understand how to connect with South Africans or in general with voters and um, to take the temperature of an electorate and to somehow communicate, but and here's the difference, which is very, very important, to communicate on the basis of your values and your vision of your party. Because, you know, it's all fair and well to simply go, well, I know that people want X, therefore I'll just give it to them. That's actually not being in politics. The important part about being in politics is being able to say, I know that people want X, and I can give it to them in line with the principles, ethics, and values of this party. And that is the difference. Now, there's been an interesting shift, uh, and because uh, on your point that you're making, uh, to to my mind, if if you look at the sort of big democracies in the world, Germany, uh, America, Canada, even the UK, there's mm-hmm. kind of been a, a, a milk pudding firing of, of of political messaging over the last maybe until sort of Trump, Corbyn, and Brexit got in, but there, there yep. seemed to be a rush for the middle uh, of, yep. of political messaging, and and I think we're starting to see that you know exploding all over the place. But it sounds to me like that that middling is exactly what you're not saying uh, political communication is about. 
Well, let's just get one thing absolutely clear. I think that there's there's two tough things going on here. Firstly, um, one is about positioning and communication, and the other one's about policy. Mm-hmm. Now, there are many, many debates and discussions around the world as to whether this middling is happening from a policy perspective, whether the average voter is, is actually moving to the middle or whether parties are moving to the middle. But from a communications perspective, the important thing is to understand that a political party is, at the end of the day, like any other product. You know, you walk down the aisle of the supermarket and suddenly you are faced with 20 different choices of toilet paper. And excuse the metaphor when I'm talking about politics. But um, And then you've got to make a choice. And you make a choice based on brand and what you think and what you feel about that party or that toilet paper. And so you've got to then look at communication from that perspective because the voter will go to the voting booth and suddenly be forced with making a choice, dealing with a life where they've got children to deal with and the goings-on of everyday life because they're not actually reading every article and press release that you think that you're putting out as a political party. So you've got to resonate emotionally with people in different ways, just like every other brand does through their advertising, through their positioning, through their ploys, through their tricks, whatever it might be. You've got to do do that over time. And so I think that is the important thing is that political communication needs to become more sophisticated. And in some cases it has. But um, I think in South Africa, frankly, it's very lacking right now. But do you think that uh, when you look at something like Trump uh, or Brexit or Cor- uh, Jeremy Corbyn, maybe, or, mm-hmm. or some of the stuff we're seeing in Europe, I mean, it yeah. does seem as though some of the political communications over Twitter, uh, it's very brash, quite aggressive yeah. almost. I yeah. mean, do you, do you think that that signals uh, an improvement uh, in the quality of political communication or, or is it just a, a reposition? Well, okay, it's a very interesting question. It doesn't improve the quality of the communication, but it's bloody brilliant communication. Let me tell you why. It's because you can have a whole bunch of people in America talking about, let's just for argument's say, immigration. And during the last presidential election, they actually did. Within the primaries, there were lots of discussions about illegal immigration. By the time we got to the actual presidential campaign between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, if you actually on paper had to understand the policies of illegal immigration for those two candidates. By and large, both of them actually agreed. They were against illegal immigration. And if they were to have a debate and they were simply just to say, I'm against illegal immigration, or me too, I'm also against illegal immigration, it's frankly boring and doesn't resonate or create an emotional bond with voters. So what Donald Trump did was he says, I'm going to ignore the policy position. I'm simply going to go directly to the heart the heart and the soul of the matter, and by doing this, build a wall. Now, immediately that does something. It, it transcends policy, it is visceral, and importantly, it divides voters straight down the middle. You are forced to choose a position for the war or against the war. You don't vacillate on something as stark and as binary as that. And that is the genius of that piece of political communication, is that it actually makes Trump, it transcends his policy to something that the average person talks about and thinks about and can relate to. And the more people do that, and frankly, it's a, demagogues have been very effective at this throughout history, but it is effective political communication. And if you think now, just take that idea and you say, right, 
Trump wants to build a war, I know his position. If you had to list every member of parliament in South Africa and you had to say, what is their position on a range of things? I guarantee you most people go, I don't know. I just have a general sense of things. Except maybe for our own version of Trump, which is Julius Malema. Like people will know exactly. what he stands for perhaps more than any other politician on the spectrum. I'm not a fan of the guy. Uh, yeah. but, but it seems to me that he's playing the same sort of communication game that you're suggesting Trump is doing. Absolutely right. And I'm not saying that you should be doing it in a way that is extreme as the subject of Trump's particular, you know, the wall, etc. But frankly, you know, why aren't parties like the Democratic Alliance and other sort of liberal or rational parties arousing our emotions and actually making us feel that, yes, these are our guys because I can actually, I have a visceral feeling that I'm supporting this campaign. Not reading some dreary five-page document that you've got to understand technicalities about, you know, really campaigning for something. And, you know, and, and let me just give you an example of how this has been done in the past. Um, Tony Leon campaigned against President Mbeki because we needed to give antiretrovirals to pregnant women. And the president said no. There you have it. It wasn't, it wasn't as extreme in terms of a social media world as we have now that we're talking about the Trump campaign, but it was extreme in South Africa and lives were at stake. And you knew right then and there that either you were for pregnant women getting antiretrovirals or you were against it. And there was only two sides to that positioning. And that is where the DA was able to record record growths amongst people who actually felt that South Africa needed to do something better when it came to the provision of health services. Now, that is the kind of campaigning that we are missing in 2018. We're talking to Nick Cleland. Uh, he is a, a, a political communicator, uh, and he's just written a book called Spin, The Art of Managing the Media. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking to Nick again about his book uh, and what it has uh, to teach us. Connecting our community. Choose life. Choose life. The 101.9 High FM. We're back with 101.9 High FM. Uh, this is the New Blue Review. We're talking to Nick Cleland today uh, about the media and political communication. Now, Nick, often in international affairs, uh, I'm thinking here like uh, the Israeli government or, or different people because obviously this is a subject we cover on this show. Uh, mm -hmm. They often focus on the idea of, of connecting with peace, uh, connecting with diversity. Uh, it's a democratic uh, country. I mean, does, does that sound to you like an effective communication strategy uh, if, you, if you're saying that the, the key way to get things across is to make things more binary? Well, firstly, connecting with diversity, what on earth does that even mean? Right. Let me just give you an example, not from anywhere near where we're talking about right now, but just slightly north of us. I went um, a few years ago to go help um, a offshoot of the Movement for Democratic Change, the MDC in Zimbabwe. And um, they had just suffered a massive defeat um, to ZANU-PF in the election. And I said, well, let's start at the beginning. What was your messaging to the people? And they said, well, our messaging was quite simple and quite clear. It was devolution, revolution. And I said, I, I, I was completely taken aback. I said, what does that even mean? <laughs> does, 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 does the average Zimbabwean actually understand when you say 
devolution, revolution. What on earth do they think that it means? And secondly, do you think they even care? I mean, it is not something that resonates. Often what happens is politicians and governments have these ideas that are bound up in their own form of talking, their own language, and their own sense of what is important. And the average voter or person doesn't give a stuff and cannot actually relate to it either. So, you know, it really is problematic. You need to actually understand what people feel, what people think, and what people want. Because if you can't do that, then what's the point of trying to communicate? Very interesting. Now, why have you written this book uh, in, in the first place? I mean, is it uh, who is it designed for? Is it to help governments uh, and, and people, or is it to help average people? What, what's the idea behind uh, the writing of the book in the yeah, first place? Sure. Well, I think I suppose there are two reasons for writing the book. The first one is that it's a um, Ryan and I, Ryan, my co-author, Ryan Kutzia, um It's 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 essentially an entire career of trying to rethink and redesign how political communication works and within the South African context. And I think it's a it's a journal and a story of what we did and how we did it within a certain methodology. So that's 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 the first thing and it's, it's and and it's it's quite a nice way of looking back. But secondly, and here's the most important thing for the actual reader is that there are political communications techniques that anyone can use in their everyday lives. If you want to make your business more successful by improving your reputation, if you want to make your NGO or your local community organization stand out from the crowd, we have got proven techniques that can actually make anyone famous and allow anyone to deal with any media coverage, crises, or any other problems they have to deal with. Well, there you go, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us on the New Blue Review. Uh, You can get his book, Spin, The Art of Managing uh, the Media, all good bookshops uh, and online. That's 120 rand. Nick, thank you so much for being on, on the show with us today. Thank you very much. It was great chatting. Nick Clellan there talking about political communication. Uh, and it's the final communication we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. been really great being with you. And uh, Mandela Day coming up. Uh, check out uh, your local Jewish papers for things that you can do. I saw a whole list in the Jewish Report. Make sure you're doing your Mandela Day bit this week. That should be pretty cool. Uh, and uh, we will see you next week on the New Blue Review.